giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on the 4th of May for the punch out here Tuesday, the 4th of May, 2021. Back with you for this week. Very happy to be back with you here. And we have plenty for you here today, as we always do on the show. We'll be talking about recent results from the Indian regional elections and what it says about uh, Prime Minister Modi there and where his power in the country stands. We're also going to be talking about ongoing Iraqi resistance to occupation of their country. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the protest and strikes that have been shaking the country of Colombia and that have come to the eyes of the world through the brutal repression and response by that country's government. Well, Colombia has been rocked for nearly a week by mass protests and strikes as the popular classes stand up against the policies of the president, Ivan Duque, who has unleashed brutal repression on those rising up in response. Originally kicked off by opposition to a tax reform law, the protests and strikes have opened up a far broader conversation about the strategic direction of the country and breaking the long chain of oligarchic, corrupt, and anti-poor governments that have plagued Colombia for decades. Now, on Sunday, President Duque tried to quell the protest by announcing a withdrawal of the tax reform law in a humiliating climb down, we must say, because he had claimed he would never withdraw the bill. However, in the face of protest, he was forced to do so, and uh, the finance minister was also forced to resign, which was being demanded by those who were out on strike and out protesting. However, Duque did say with his withdrawal that he will push Congress to pass a new law that reaches a quote-unquote consensus on how the tax burden should be distributed. Now, Duque, of course, is saying that it's necessary to have a tax reform in order to fund a government that can make action in terms of the issues of social progress that people are upset about. But the first bill was a massive multi-billion dollar tax hike on the poor and working classes. Now, Duque, clearly fearful of the mass uprising, is claiming there is a consensus to levy more taxes on wealthy individuals and corporations. Strike and protest leaders, though, are calling on the population and the world who's watching to stay vigilant and not demobilize, noting that Duque almost certainly will attempt some form of deception as he clearly only made these changes to try to calm down the angry masses. And it's certainly, given what we know of how he's ruled so far, questionable whether or not he really wants to do any of what he claims he wants to do in terms of using this money to improve the situation for people in the country. So another element of that of this entire process is really to understand that piece of it right there, that even though it seems as if Duque is climbing down, it may in fact just be a redirection to place the burden, as it has always been, more on the poor than on the rich there in Colombia. And of course, 
His motives can be questioned because his concessions come alongside brutal and ongoing repression that's designed to weaken the movement at the grassroots through fear and intimidation, through the use of everything from tear gas at protests to murder. Between April 28th and May 1st, 940 cases of police violence were registered. These included 21 deaths, 92 victims of physical violence, 672 arbitrary arrests, 136 violent interventions, 12 victims with eye injuries, and 30 cases of shooting with firearms and four victims of sexual violence. It's notable that last fall, massive protests against Duque faced similar forms of repression, including a number of people assassinated by security forces. And at that time, the movements in the streets demanded the dismantling of the SMAD forces, uh, which is a brutal police unit used against protesters that has also been guilty of some of the worst human rights abuses this time around as well. And likely, this is really what Duque fears, that there is clearly a movement that's growing against his regime and the long-term right-wing direction of the country that can't be quelled by this vicious repression that has been visited on the past several large risings this year and last year. And Colombia has some of the highest levels of spending on military and security in the region, by the way while also having some of the worst inequality and in unemployment levels and poor access to basic services like health, housing, and education. Increasingly, it seems, people are refusing to continue to live like this, and recent polling shows Gustavo Petro, the left-leaning leader of a broad coalition of progressive forces gearing up for the next election, is far ahead of any potential challenger, at least at this point. Clearly, the mood on the streets expresses the growing rejection of the status quo and the fact that people will not be cowed and will not be driven out of the streets by the fear that is being pushed forward or attempted to be pushed forward by this brutal repression. It can't be easily contained, this uprising, at least without serious changes to the very anti-poor and working class status quo that existed in Colombia for decades. So what happens next, we'll have to see, but certainly the forces on the streets continue to be vigilant, and as always, repression only breeds resistance. <laughs> Six rockets were fired at Balad Air, Air Base in Iraq on May 4th at an area occupied by U.S. military contractors. One contractor was wounded, and there appears to have been limited damage to the base. This comes about 24 hours after two rockets targeted U.S. troops at a base in Baghdad in what has been an ongoing series of attacks related to the ongoing presence of U.S. forces in Iraq. In both cases, there was no claim of responsibility, but of course, the international media is linking the attacks to Iranian-backed groups, quote-unquote. This is the latest in at least 30 attacks on U.S. interests of some sort since Joe Biden has become president. The root cause of the attacks is, as mentioned before, the U.S. presence in Iraq. Last year, as you may remember, the U.S. launched a strike on Iraq that killed top Iranian leader Qassem Soleimani, but also Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis was a top leader of the Popular Mobilization Forces, which were armed groups of Iraqis over a million strong that rallied to be the backbone of the forces that defeated the ISIS invasion of the country and that are also a part of Iraq's security forces, officially a part of the government. So the blatant assassination, as you might imagine, the blatant assassination of a high-ranking Iraqi official caused outrage, mass outrage in the country and led to Iraq's parliament voting for U.S. troops to leave. And that was in January of 2020. Now, recently, talks have been going on regarding the removal of all U.S. troops, allegedly. Now, Iraq's government has said that the talks so far have led to an agreement in principle for withdrawal, but just no timeline on which it will take place. The U.S. forces have, however, presented it very differently, saying that not only is there not a timeline for them to be leaving, but essentially that they are not leaving anytime soon. 
So first and foremost, we have to foreground the fact that the U.S. seems to be refusing to leave Iraq on anything other than its own terms, which obviously is colonial, plain and simple. Their rationale for staying is that the parliamentary vote was non-binding and didn't represent all Iraqi political forces. Iraq's political system is dominated by forces that are anywhere from marginally to extremely hostile to the U.S. and do not want Iraq to be yoked to the broader U.S. regional power game. Most of these forces are, quote-unquote, close to Iran, but in reality, most of them also are not looking to be dominated by Iran either. But their ties between Iraq and Iran, that is, are based on long cultural, ethnic, and religious histories that bind the two countries together very tightly, which means the relationship will naturally be a close one. However, Iraq's government also has set itself up as a mediator between Saudi Arabia and Iran and clearly wants to seek a less warlike agenda than what the U.S. would like to see in the region, which is just to balkanize the region to limit Iranian influence in the favor of the United States and Israel and whatever other, uh, you know, puppet governments they can sign on to their colonial style divide and conquer plans. There are, however, elements that lean closer to Iran's opponents in the Gulf and the United States, and they do look more favorably on a U.S. presence, since the whole goal of the U.S. deployment in Iraq after the defeat of ISIS, more or less, is designed to counter Iranian influence. They view the U.S. presence as a strategic hedge against their enemies domestically in Iraq, and the U.S. is using that as leverage to create essentially ambiguity around whether or not the vast majority of Iraqis want them to leave. They do, uh, in order to stay there longer than they should be. Hence, the rocket attacks. Since clearly the U.S. is not going to recognize the broad sentiment that the, they leave Iraq, the low-level rocket attacks are a form of pressure, a reminder of the type of resistance that is possible if the U.S. does not withdraw forces. And no doubt, they will continue as the issue continues to drag out. In other words, as long as the U.S. feels it's justified playing power games in Iraq to push forward an agenda that allows it to control regional politics, anything with an American flag on it in Iraq... It's going to be fair game. Results from India's regional elections are in, and the BJP government of Narendra Modi saw major defeats in areas they had contested hotly, raising serious questions about the strength of the governing coalition. In particular, in West Bengal, which the BJP had heavily targeted, including manipulating the election rules, the Trinamool Congress, or TMC, secured 213 seats in the 294-seat Legislative Assembly, improving its previous tally by two seats. The BJP, meanwhile, could only, in, only win 77 seats, despite deploying Modi and every BJP heavyweight they could find and waging a vicious campaign of religious sectarianism to divide and mobilize voters based on hatred. The Bengal election was then, in many ways, a very encouraging rejoinder to the BJP attempts to divide people along religious lines in India. In Kerala, where the BJP never really had a chance anyways, the left democratic front, led by the Communist Party of India Marxists, romped to victory, winning 99 out of 140 seats, including the one seat the BJP managed to win in the last elections. And... Notably, for the first time in history, in the history of the state, I should say, the same ruling coalition won successive victories. So usually the left Democratic Front, if they win, the next time something called the United Democratic Front, uh, which is affiliated with the Congress Party, wins. This time, the left Democratic Front won two times in a row. The LDF campaigned under the slogan, hashtag LDF for sure. 
as their win was fairly preordained as the COVID-19 pandemic had led to a significant rise in support for the communist leadership of Kerala that has had by far the best response in India to the pandemic, mobilizing massive grassroots public health and mutual aid efforts, effective communications and information gathering on top of a long history of investments in healthcare and education by left governments that put the state in a better position in the first place, not to mention a powerful forward-looking agenda based on the information knowledge economy, which is being supercharged there in Kerala because they are now offering free high-speed broadband internet to everyone who lives in the state. In Tamil Nadu, the DMK, which is one of two major parties in that state, the two major parties are state-level parties there, uh, but the DMK, which is more affiliated with some of the more progressive forces like the left, handily defeated the AIA DMK, which is allied with the BJP, which was just another defeat for the BJP. Although they did win in Assam state, so they didn't have all negative things on their balance sheet there. But overall, when you look at the results, it really cut Modi down to size. The BJP had seemed fairly unbeatable, and their brand of right-wing Hindu supremacy to rolling wave that would be hard to stop. However, the regional election so clear limits to the BJP strategy and to their popularity. The TMC, while viciously anti-left, is welfarist. So combined with victories in Kerala and to a lesser extent in other states, it certainly speaks to the role of pro-working class policies in combating the BJP style of sectarianism. The BJP and Modi, however, are still solidly the leading political force in the country. They are, of course, ruling at the center. And while these victories show that they can be beaten, just like the massive ongoing farmers' protests show that they are not all-powerful, much work remains to be done for the BJP government overall and the broader movement they're a part of to be dislodged and defeated. That's the punch-out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah.